Welcome to Just a GP podcast. My name is Ashley Broomfield and I'm here with our usual hosts, Charlotte Hesby and Beck Hoffman. Today we are chatting with Elizabeth Oliver, who is also known as Beth to me and to others as That Lady Doctor. Uh, Beth and I did our general practice training together and is currently spending six months in a palliative care rotation and has achieved her general practice fellowship but has a large passion in writing and in particular writing to educate the public and connect with other doctors. Welcome Beth. Thank you, thanks for having me. We really appreciate you coming on to speak with us today and to chat with you a little bit about your passion. But before we get into that topic, what we normally do is talk about a highlight of the week. So I might start with you and if you can tell me a highlight of your week this week. Oh my goodness. Oh, you sprung this on me. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I well, did I, meant to tell no, you on the phone earlier. and I <laughs> I'm just trying to think. So I'm actually having a bit of a weird time because I have just started a new rotation in palliative medicine in a tertiary centre. Um, and so that's very different from being a regional GP. Um, and I'm trying to think, what is the highlight? I guess the highlight of my week has been um, being back in a team um, because I find Sometimes I can find GP a bit isolating and a bit lonely. And um, even just over the last six days, um, building relationships with my team members and, and working with them has actually has been quite exhilarating. So that's probably my high of the week. Yeah, that's a good highlight. Mm, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> yeah. And there's lots of GPs out there who do work in hospital environments quite frequently because of that reason and they like to have a toe still in that system so that they can continue doing that sort of work. How about you, Charlotte? So my, my highlight this week has actually been an RSCGP highlight. Uh, we had a sort of a launch of looking at Parkrun and what that might mean to us as GPs um, in terms of social prescribing and how we might look at it in, in encouraging our patients to move. So it was, it was an awesome night. We had these GPs who were able to talk about the wonderful transformative power of something like Park Run, which is a really, really interesting concept where it's basically a 5K run, but it's more than just a being a 5K run. It's something that's programmed in the same time, the same place every week. You turn up, there's social connectedness. You have to click in, you click out, you can walk, you can run, you can be a volunteer and help. And it's just this really powerful program and it's really interesting because what they're celebrating at the moment that in Australia the average time to do that five kilometers is getting longer and longer and that oh, that's means, so great yeah it's, it's awesome isn't it yeah it's that there's all these people who've never moved who are coming and joining the program and I just oh it just sort of made me feel very emotional and excited about what you can do with programs like that and uh, certainly for me I'm very excited because we're we're trying to actually do a park run in my local area in partnership with Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and I just think that's great because we're going to try and launch it as a well-being for the staff at the hospital as well as for the local community of the patients that I'm looking after. Cool. 
I love that so much. And I love, um, I've got so many patients who have joined Parkrun locally to where I work and they all talk about it as being a completely different community spirit to anything else they've done. And it's so much more than a fun run, which you might do like City to Surf was last weekend. Um, and people who have done that have spoken so highly about the achievement they've made by finishing it. But Parkrun seems completely different from a community perspective of why you're doing it. Um, it seems really quite unique. Yeah, it is. And just the history of it. I mean, I could keep on going, but it's not my show. It's over to you, it's over to you Beck, now about your heart. I actually had a really lovely day on the weekend where um, it was ridiculously cold and windy, but that meant that I could spend most of the day um, gardening because I've got a enclosed garden space with the kids and we had a really nice day just potting and repotting and weeding and it's something that we haven't done for a long time and was in desperate need of doing but after doing it you actually feel like you've achieved something as well it was a really nice day spent in the sun and away from the wind doing something with the kids it was good I thought you were going to say, so I had the opportunity to go inside and watch movies all day and that was amazing. <laughs> well, <that laughs> we're all dreaming of too, aren't we? I'll do my highlight next week. So my highlight of the week was I did my first day assisting a surgeon on Friday last week and the Friday is my, usually my day where I'm not consulting. And you guys know what it would be like. You have a day that you allocate that where you're not consulting and that's supposed to be a day off where you, you know, do the washing and um, make sure everything's organised and maybe fluff around a little bit and have some time to yourself. But then it inevitably turns into that time that you organise all your meetings and do all your paperwork and all the other stuff that we add to our schedules and becomes another day of work. It's just not... Um, face-to-face consulting work so because I had this day um, in theatre I had to um, I had the opportunity to have a different day of the week where I didn't consult and I, I didn't have anything booked in or planned to do so I got so much stuff done that I usually don't get done on that day and that was really timely I needed a day where nothing was booked in to to do or teach or or anything like that. So that was my highlight. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? Nobody knows you're around, so you can just sneak out of um, the visual. Um, and yes, exactly. <laughs> nice. So Beth, now we're now the attention all goes to you because awesome. <laughs> we know that you know you love. <laughs> I'm I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek because. <laughs> Beth had a pseudonym for a long time as the, that lady doctor because she didn't want people to know that she was the person behind the the articles. And we may all remember one of her um, most popular first articles was uh, titled, and correct me if I'm wrong, what I do for $37.05. Um, yeah, and, I mean, We've been upgraded a little bit to thirty-eight dollars and sixty cents. Oh wow, generous! <laughs> and and most recently, um, you've written an article on uh, the gender pay gap discrepancies mm. between female GPs and male GPs. So mm. you've you've written quite a few um, provocative articles, which basically 
call things how they are and basically put 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 it out there for public opinion and um over that period of time you've obviously become much more confident because now your full name is next to your article (laughs) (laughs) yeah they don't let you keep doing the pseudonym thing for very long (laughs) and we recently spoke with uh, Edwin Cruz on our podcast at last year's conference about the difference between a thought leader and a formal leader and you know I would call you an influencer or or a thought leader in terms of putting stuff out there for the discussion so that people actually have to talk about it and then do something about it. Wow. So why don't you you talk to us a little bit about why you do what you do and what it's been like for you receiving so much attention from from the articles that you've written. Ah, oh, okay. I'll, yeah. I, I don't know that I would call myself an influencer and I certainly don't feel I don't feel like I've had as much attention as maybe you think that I've had, but I don't know, maybe I just haven't noticed. I don't know. Um, but it's been it's been two years since I published the first article. Um, so I was talking to my friend about, I was working in a bulk billing clinic and I was um, venting to my friend about the, the challenges of the day and how I felt that people didn't understand what it was that I was doing or what the, what GPs do. And I said, oh, I'm going to write an article and I'm going to call it what I do for $37.05. And he was like, oh, my goodness, you have to write that article and you have to send it to the Sydney Morning Herald. And I was like, oh, as if, you know. But I wrote the article and I put it on my blog and then went to bed and then I woke up in the morning and it had had like 60,000 views and it had been shared all over Facebook and had really taken off. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Um okay, maybe I will send it to the Sydney Morning Herald. And I did, and they published it, and it became one of their, um, it was one of their top 20 most read articles of 2017. And I... Um, and I just pop in thought, with a oh, wow at that point. Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, thank you. Yeah, I still wow. But what was that? I found it, the whole experience really bizarre um, because I just couldn't believe that people were so interested, like doctors and non-medical people were so interested to hear about our day and the, the feedback that I got from people. I mean, I had to kind of go low and not be on Facebook too much because there was a lot of other stuff as well. And um, But I guess it was so wonderful hearing people say, oh, I just didn't know that that's what you did or I didn't know that I can't believe that that's what GPs do in a day or I didn't know that that's how bulk billing worked. Um, I'm, I, I don't mind. I'll pay a gap now. It, it doesn't bother me. Like I, I, I didn't realise that that was how it worked and obviously not. Everybody gave feedback like that, but there was a lot of just really, there was this really wonderful feeling of having connected with people and enhanced the role of GP and and made it more accessible and made it really real for people because I feel like a lot of people, I gave a, a bit of a, a spiel about our day and a list of patients that we might see. And, um, and I think a lot of people saw themselves or someone they loved in one of those patients. And so it had a lot of meaning for them. And and for me, that was, yeah, it was really exciting. And so after that, it just kind of took off and I started writing kind of regular articles um, about that stuff. And yeah, I guess in terms of in terms of being in the public eye or being receiving feedback, I don't really feel, I mean, I, I, I just, you know, I don't always read the comments, I guess, is one of the things that I adhere to. Um, 
And I, I've definitely learned a lot as well. So some things I've written, I've kind of gone, okay, I, I really learned something from that experience and I need to be more careful with this or I need to be more clear with this or I need to use less jargon here or, or whatever. But um, yeah, overall, it's been really positive. Um, yeah, the most recent one, the gender pay gap, I definitely got some interesting um, feedback about that. Um, but I can talk about that in a bit if you like. That'd be fine. Talk about it now. I mean, I, 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 the, I think the pender, the gender, the pender, the gender pay gap is a, a sort of a fascinating thing, isn't it? Because it's that um, the calling out the differences in the way in which we practice in the general practice, sort of you know, environment. Now we all know that there are men who practice like that, but as you, you know, as we also know that by and large, the it is that sort of thing of that by and large, women will mostly be the you know, that the take the longer time and the men will be faster. And certainly my experience as a, um, a teaching GP has been that some of the men that come through in terms of registrars don't want to stay at my practice because they don't see it as being a money-earning proposition. Oh, wow. Because we practice high quality. I mean, that's what we value is that we do – um, deliver high quality care with complicated patients and for me that's the absolute joy and I don't actually really think about the pay and so I've been shocked a few times with these guys that go I really love working here but I can't work here because I actually need to do high volume um, practice to actually earn the money. Yeah wow that's a pretty complicated statement I think um Partly because I don't think it's totally true that you can't practice good quality medicine as a GP and not be well reimbursed for it. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, that it could be easier. Oh, don't worry. I, I, I agree with you entirely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I, we, we can talk about that <laughs> in another context, but that's okay. But it's interesting that that will be the sort of the reason yeah. behind where some go. I wonder how quickly they burn out. I guess it would be my, um, especially after working. I mean, I, I've worked in about 10 or 11 different practices, having locumed a lot in the last few years. And going from a practice where you do have time to work with people and practice what is essentially safe, effective, meaningful medicine to a place where you, you feel like you're just running and putting out fires and you feel quite frustrated and quite um, ineffective it's so it's so awful. I, f- I find it terrible, um, and I and I can't work in those places anymore. I just I'm like I'm not even doing any good here, you know. And so you tend to go back to the other model. But um, yeah, I guess so. So when I wrote the first article for Sydney Morning Herald about the gender pay gap, and of course they kind of sensationalise it and they put this sensational headline on there and everything, but it was based on data that showed that essentially female GPs make. I think it was nine dollars less an hour than male GPs, and I don't think that that comes as a shock to any female GPs. Like I think we know why that is the case, and we kind of feel it in our practice, and we hear it from our patients when they say things to us like, "Oh, you know, I knew, I knew that, you know, I wanted to see a lady doctor because it, it was complicated, and I needed somebody to listen or or whatever." Um, so I don't think that it was surprising to any female GPs. And I thought something that was really telling was that when the first article came out. Um, in Australian Doctor just mentioning this gender pay gap, the, there were comments that were written. That, I mean, Australian Doctor gets about five comments per article and there were about 45 comments after this article. This wasn't mine. This was somebody else's back in May. And um, 
almost all of them were men and it was male doctors. And it was just, it was almost as though female GPs were like, I don't even have anything to say there. Like, yeah, obviously, I know. And they just didn't even choose to participate in that dialogue because to some extent it it was very dismissive and it was slightly vitriolic and it was very condescending. And this was coming from our colleagues and I was I was really surprised. I just thought, wow, like you're not even, you're just finding all these different ways to invalidate what the numbers clearly show. And that was definitely my response, to, uh, the response that I received from the Sydney Morning Herald article was a number of strange men emailing me to explain to me why the numbers were wrong and how I needed to practice differently and it was all my fault because of whatever you know so it was definitely an interesting insight into the way that some males hashtag not all male doctors um respond to criticism um or or perceived criticism um so yeah I was gonna I'll I'll interrupt it yeah please that's okay again it's it is interesting that that idea that it is a criticism isn't it yeah it's because you know at the end of the day there is that sort of sense of horses for courses Mm. um because, you know, we practice the style of medicine that we hopefully enjoy most. And that's where, you know, in my practice, we have men who practice the same style of medicine mm. as myself. Mm-hmm. And and they would, you know, they're on the other side of the bell curve. But if it's perceived as a criticism, then that's that's the issue. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really sad when we as GPs pull each other down. I think it's really important that we need to stand together. We need to stand together really strongly and say we are delivering a really really valuable fantastic service that can actually make a huge difference for the population of Australia together and we do it differently we need to therefore look after the women that are doing it so we probably need to have some different models of care so that we can all actually practice medicine the way we want to but actually be appropriately remunerated for what we're doing because we're all doing a fantastic job rather than pulling each other down for saying that we're different. Yes, because at essence it's not really about the the gender at the core problem. You know, the the thing is that, that each uh, gender may have strengths and weaknesses generalised about the way that they prefer or like to practise medicine or the way that patients perceive that they might Um, receive different care and there's sorts of cultural and ingrained ideas that um, if they change it all will take many many years to change and so what we're really looking at when we look at the the pay differences with in relation to to gender in medicine is the way that we're remunerated differently for different styles of care and that spending longer time with patients and dealing with patients with higher levels of complexity compared to a procedural-based approach or high-volume care actually doesn't doesn't equate in terms of equal income. And when there is an argument that spending more time and developing that patient relationship in that, in that consultation is going to improve healthcare outcomes more so than and than the different model of care, so it, it, you know, I tend to agree with you, Charlotte. If if we start to look at it as a as an attack on gender, which I know that Beth 
didn't mean to do that at all. It was just looking at, you know, why is this different and why should it be different and, um, you know, bringing that into into the play, um, then we miss the actual thing that needs to change about it. Yeah, and, and also too that there's an opportunity here to actually challenge the way in which we are paid. You know, it is. It's crazy that the longer you spend with a patient, the less you you earn. And, you know, like how how crazy is that? We know that we need to be sorting out this complexity and that we also know that when it's sorted out in the primary care setting, it's a 100 times cheaper than when it actually then has to fall into the tertiary setting. So let's value it, let's pay for it. And let's celebrate it. Um, and we, you know, there's lots of opportunities there. So I'm interested, Beth. I know that we've spoken about this before, and you said that you, even though you're very popular amongst medics, so a lot of your articles are widely read and revered by the medical profession. <laughs> you primarily, <laughs> you primarily prefer to write for patients so that they understand what it's like for us. How have you found recently that the, in terms of getting the target audience correct, how, that ha- how that's come across and has the response to any of your articles changed your approach in, in what you want to do in the future? Hmm. Has the response to the articles changed the way I, wanted to, I want to work? And is that what you're asking is... Sorry, I sort of didn't really understand what you're asking. Yeah, because I asked about three questions in one. It's not very fair. <laughs> we can edit that. Basically, out. what I'm trying to say is, why don't we talk about the first question? You know, you've you we've spoken that you you primarily your target market is you want to try and educate mm. um, people about what medicine is like from our perspective, and not just and not just what it's like from our perspective, but also just about medical topics on math yeah yeah sorry yeah and um but a lot of your most popular articles have been um oh yeah like a day in the life kind of thing yeah and so they've been really popular with the medical profession um significantly so these two articles that we're talking about obviously were um quite popular amongst other medical doctors as well Mm. um, because they really identified with what you were talking about Mm. um so has Given that you've kind of called out a, a few of those things, has that changed your ideas about, you know, who your target audience is and what kind of writing you want to do? Do you know, not really. Um, I know maybe that sounds really ungracious, but I, I, I don't think necessarily that other doctors need to hear what I have to say. I, I think that generally change comes from a groundswell. It comes from like the people that are consuming the service that we provide. Um, and so so one of the articles, I wrote an article before the election about why it's not important to either political party to invest in preventative care. And there's a number of reasons for this, but, I mean, obviously preventative care measures um, are vastly more cost-effective, as Charlotte was saying, as we know, and we feel that in our practice, but that doesn't suit an election cycle. And that even though you might save, you know, a certain amount of money by investing in preventative care, that doesn't really have any value to the politicians that we're trying to encourage to invest in preventative care. So I guess that kind of change, I feel like GPs and doctors have been 
talking to politicians and lobbying politicians about this for decades and nothing happens because if you write an article that says, oh, we've signed a license for 30 new MRI machines, the public goes, oh, my God, that's amazing. Or, you know, we're going to make cancer scans free. Like, oh, my God, that sounds good. And so that that sounds that's much more appealing to the general public. And so that may be something that affects, you know, the vote or whatever. But um, if you actually can convince the public or convince the average consumer of healthcare in this country that investing in problems, in solving problems before they actually come up is, is the way to do things, then that's going to create far more change than a whole bunch of doctors just saying what they've been saying for years and years and years and nobody's listening to them because there's no votes there. Um, so I think that's probably, I, I don't think I've ever really thought about it in those terms before, but that's probably what essentially drives me is that I feel like there's more change, there's more potential change in speaking to the people who consume the healthcare that we provide than there is necessarily in preaching to the choir, essentially. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Good. And actually, I really like it because if we can get the general public to understand, it's, I mean, I'm with you completely that the, the sort of the preventative care, primary care story is very unsexy. And we see that with politicians all the time. You know, the sexy is the going into that accident emergency department and the whiz bang, whoa, here's the technology and wow, you've saved, you know, you're saved with intensive care. You were dead, but now you're alive. Um, it just really gets everybody going. What would be nice is if we could actually go, here's you. You have two options. One is the option of the GP. This is where your life is like or this is where without it. And maybe that gets a bit sexier. I don't know. Maybe you're good at doing something like that, Beth. Yeah, like sexing up GP. That's awesome. That's that's what I that's what I try and do, Ash. That's what I keep that's doing. That's the title of your next article. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we need to change the title of this podcast, <laughs> Sexing Up General Practice. That will go far. Wonder how, wonder how many people we'd get listening to it yeah. then, hey? <laughs> They'd be really disappointed. <laughs> I don't know. They're not going to be they're not going to be disappointed by this at all. This is really interesting. Just no, 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 no. <laughs> I was more thinking the the Googling that might result in that that title and then what people might be expecting from from listening and they would maybe they're disappointed in what they expected. Um, anyway, I think that the second part to my question, Beth, was given the feedback that you've received, how like how has that changed what you want to do in terms of your writing? Do you feel like it's it's inspired you to to do more, less? Well, right now I'm working full time. Oh my god, in um, in uh, palliative medicine, and so I've got. A lot of learning on my plate, and so at the moment, writing has kind of taken a back seat. But uh, I think it's made me. I, I think the articles that are really successful and resonate with people are not necessarily my favorite ones that I've written. So my my like magnum opus, dear to my heart, article is one that I wrote for ABC Religion Ethics, which probably took me on and off about ten months about prenatal testing and about some of the corporate interest in prenatal testing and um, the speed with which um, these corporations were trying to one-up each other on certain tests that they'd offered and the complexity of prenatal testing and how and, and what it's like to talk to a woman about that and to counsel her about um, those issues. And it was, it, it was kind of drawing a link between Brave New World and Gadiger and where is this taking us? And this is a really significant event in medicine 
um, and it's kind of just slid by and we haven't even really talked about it in our public discourse. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I'm really interested in is taking something that's that's really kind of inaccessible for people. Um, so, so for a woman who's pregnant, she's got a few weeks to sort out what's going on um, before, you know, the window is closed and she's 14, 15 weeks or whatever. And and so trying to explain, you know, what's involved in that test and, and what's going on behind the scenes, um, that's kind of, I guess, what I'm most passionate about. And I'm looking at the moment in um, at a larger project um, where I'm developing Oh, I don't know if I want to tell you about this. Um, So I'm developing a a series of of essays around the the nine things that I see in general practice, which are, I guess, for me, so have I gone on too long? Can I keep talking about this or...? You keep going. Okay, I don't want to bore you, but essentially what I, so I, you know, you go into GP and the first six months are like the most terrifying months of your life and you just think, oh my God, will it ever end? The things that people come in with and there's always something new and, and, and that to some extent is true. But after maybe two or three years, I realized, I was like, hang on a second, there's only actually about nine different things that people are coming in with. And there's all these different kind of uh, superficialities to that, that kind of muddy the waters. But if you really dig down, you know, that the essential problems are really similar, you know, anxiety, um, wanting to have a perfect child, uh, fear of death, um, affluenza, you know. So I, I felt like there were these really strong core underlying um, issues that people were coming in with. And so I started to develop these nine essays based on those nine um core issues and so I'm still working on those so that's actually those are bigger things and those that's probably going they're going to be big long feature length kind of essays and I I just really hope to explore what it is as humans that we that why do we seek out our doctors and what do we bring to them and and I think that I think it's really interesting I'm quite excited it sounds like a textbook in the um in the writing Beth (laughs) one of those sorts of ones that is sort of core and fundamental to the understanding of the power of being the doctor it's sort of like one of the things I remember I was really struck by when I was a junior doctor is about the power of just being there and being able to take it in and understanding as you say that sort of underlying stuff that it is that we're dealing with Um, I just think that's awesome so well done and I can't wait till you come out with it because I think (laughs) it's 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 hard sometimes for us to sort of name it um, and yeah. when you can name it, then it makes it much easier for us to understand what it is that we then need to respond to and how we plan for it and and have that real patient-centred care. Well, I think it also, hopefully, it makes it clearer for people as well because I think a lot of people don't have the time or the ability to see what's really happening what the root thing that's happening is in their lives that's causing them to be unwell. And and that's the best thing about GP, right, is that you get to sit down and unpack that with somebody and kind of go, no, but hang on, what's causing that? And what's causing that? What's causing, like, let's get to the bottom of it. And that that to me is the most exciting thing. And what I found was that every time I went to the bottom of things with people, it was kind of always the same nine things that was at the core of what was what was going on for them. So do you keep a diary of your I'm, – I'm fascinated by your audit <laughs> process of getting your nine things? Um, 
I yes, I yes, I, no, I didn't. <laughs> no, these were just <laughs> these were just things that I started to put together, and then I did actually. So I had I did this project where I took a screenshot of my week of my like um, medical software. Um, page my booking page and I looked at all the names and all of the appointment slots and I was like oh yeah that's number three that's number two that's definitely number nine. Oh, maybe that one doesn't fit into any of them and I felt like I could not that I want to compartmentalize people but I felt like ah oh, this when I look at it like that I can see what's actually going on is that each of these people are coming in with one of these things that I've identified and I feel like yes now I can just go straight for that thing and um and try and deal with that so yeah, but no, I was I was not. I should do that. I have actually been planning to do that for a while, but I haven't done it. So. Um, I guess what I'm really interested in is that all of those topics have one come about from really long, potentially difficult conversations using what sounds like slow, slower medicine. <clears throat> but then where to from here? So. We know your next steps and they sound amazing and inspiring, but as a community both of GPs and then both as a wider community, where do you think that we can advocate for slow medicine? That's like that's a really fundamental question about who we are as a society and what we believe the function and purpose of a society and a community to be. So so I practiced in a inner city clinic for a long time. And what I felt was that so much of the suffering and illness that I saw was related to our lifestyle and our pursuit of financial security and whatever the other things are that make us feel safe. And so I just don't know that it's something that you can change on the surface is what what people essentially want for their lives. And that was a really interesting thing that I noticed, um, certainly in the in the inner city, was that, you know, 80% of my day was spent dealing with medical issues that had come up because people's mortgages were too big. Like that was that was what I felt was, was going on for a lot of people. And obviously it's not that simple, but... But it's that, that's the social prescribing aspect of what I, yeah. I I will sort of, you know, say is that exactly I did an audit of, of my patient care and it was just like the, the number of issues that is all around the external things that are affecting people's health. But what we're, we're not actually needing to give them a pill for it. We're needing to help them sort out dealing with the effects of the society that we live in and how you deal with it. Mm, totally. And I think therein lies the beauty of general practice. And what I really love about talking to other GPs that work in this environment is once you start doing medicine for long enough, and there's been a lot of medical writers who've, you know, put pen to paper and, and come up with this same thing, Beth, and not exactly the same as what you're doing, but I mean the, you know, the longer you practice medicine in general practice, the more you get to understand that the origins of illness is more than the body and you get to see the the construct of how our sociocultural um, environments influence our own health and illness. And I think that's where it can come, become start to start to become really frustrating for us because the way that our care is oriented is not towards those things but it's towards the the presenting issue 
And so I, I think what you're trying to say is that you've come to understand health and well-being as part of not just the person but also our society and our culture and our environment and what you're looking to do is trying to educate people on being able to see that for themselves and other doctors about being able to see that as well. Ash, you're so good at this. You're really, really good. Um, That's exactly what I was trying to say. And I think it actually goes back to what we were saying before about the gender pay gap was that, or what what I was thinking when I was writing that article was that medicine has changed. I mean, 60, 70 years ago, what the local GP did was very different. And I don't take anything away from delivering babies in paddocks and going door to door at night and taking care of kids with diphtheria and polio. Like I, I, I just can't even imagine the types of, the type of work that, that those doctors did. And also even now doctors in more rural areas who are dealing with much more acute kind of, this is the problem right now kind of stuff. I don't, I don't want to take away from that. And I felt like that was what a lot of the response to that article was about was kind of like, oh, you know, you're just doing the social stuff and it's not, you know, it's not important when somebody's at death's door and all that kind of stuff. And that is true to an extent. And I absolutely take my hat off to doctors who work in really isolated environments where they do a lot of that work. But I think, I guess what I was trying to say is that the bulk of medicine has actually changed, like with immunizations and antibiotics and seatbelts and all the things and modern obstetric care. medicine itself has changed and the type of medicine that we need to practice has changed. And to some extent, our foes are now not bacteria and war in this country anyway. Our foes are indolent lifestyle and high calorie food and family breakdown and working too long hours in sedentary jobs. And and that's medicine has to change with that. And and that's not like female medicine. That's just that's actually just what medicine is now. And um, so yeah, that's what I was trying to say. There was not that not that I took away from the fact that it, that there is very high acuity medicine that needs to be addressed, but that the bulk of general practice now, if we want to look at like people living longer and having better lives, is is that the social stuff in inverted commas? And and I really like the way you put it actually that sort of the the movement of that um, which is sort of for me I often say it's that the movement from being just reactive to actually being able to sit there and respond to what's actually going on and as you say it's that whole um, the effect of our society on health is so much more what we're dealing with yeah absolutely Mm. and it's not sexy no, really not. Sexy. It's no, a bit it's sexy. sexy. It's a little bit. I, mean, I don't know. Okay, I'm not going to say that. You can't say that. <laughs> well, we we need to sell I it. I find it sexy. extremely. Good. Well, I find it sexy too, but we have to figure out how to sell it. Well, I, I mean, and that's 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 what I was about to talk about, Charlotte. Is that, um, you know, when I first decided to do medicine, I really wanted to be a part of a community and help a community. And then, as you go through medical school and you know, internship and residency and you get to see the the sexy part of medicine, you know, the acuity and the life-saving and the quick, you know, you, you do something and then you immediately see a result or, you know, you do a procedure and you immediately get a reward for the procedure being done. Whereas the type of medicine that we currently deal with in, in medical school, a lot of students, you know, there's that culture of, oh, you know, communication or... Oh, 
you know, like the social stuff or cultural stuff. Like that's not the meaty part, you know. They don't the the interesting scientific kind of useful the adrenaline rush the adrenaline rush and the the knowledge accumulation and you know, being really good at knowing all your stuff is and and being good at your exams and having all that that data there is that's kind of the driver and that the there's a whole bunch of cultural things in relation to putting a, a bunch of people who are high achievers together and then getting them to compete against each other that I think feels a lot of that but so it took me a while to then come back around to general practice and you know having that experience in in my resident term and actually seeing how fulfilling it is to work with somebody and work them through something as simple as quitting smoking or changing their career slightly so they've got a bit more work-life balance or just being there for somebody when they need you and then you know six months or 12 months down the track they say I really appreciate that you were there for me in that time and you know you saved my life at that point that's the kind of stuff that is fully fulfilling and and rich I think in terms of a, a long career in medicine and it's how do you make that sexy is is or attractive is is difficult I think it's the stories. Yeah. It's the stories, which is where I think, Beth, you do such a good job because you do, you're good at actually making it have this visual story. And I think we're so much better at understanding stuff when we put it into context. It's like, you know, when we're teaching medical students, the PBL thing, give them a story and they'll remember because they'll understand it. And I think that selling why, what, we need to do in terms of changing medicine is going to have to be about selling these stories. Yeah, I mean, in terms of for encouraging doctors or medical students to consider GP, I remember not particularly enjoying my GP placements. And I don't think that that was the fault of any GPs or patients or the, or the practices. I think it's just that general practice is something that has to be experienced. I don't think that you can get that feeling that Ash was talking about from watching somebody else do general practice. Like you need to, I don't know if you guys remember, I, I was terrified the first three months of my um, my first term as a registrar because I felt like the decision density was suddenly like through the roof and I was making so many decisions and um, they were just hot on the heels of each other and I just felt like, whoa, this is, it was the most adrenaline filled three months of my life even compared with all of my inpatient terms. So I sort of feel like in terms of making general practice sexy, I just, I think you have to do it. I think you have to experience like taking that risk and believing in yourself and doing your research and and being careful and like, and making those decisions and treating patients yourself and seeing the results of, of your actions. And then, and then it becomes really addictive and it's great, but it's, it's hard. It's a hard thing to watch. I don't think it's very appealing to watch. Yeah. That's where the PG triple P program, I think sold it can sell it so much better because you do it as a much more junior doctor and you get how exciting it can be yeah and, and, and as a student you don't have you haven't developed that level of complexity of understanding or your clinical reasoning skills enough to know all the stuff that you need to be thinking about and all of the things that you could potentially be missing and all the stuff that you have to do in that space of time and I think like any profession when when you become an expert in that area you make it look a lot easier and a lot more boring than it actually is inside the person's head who's doing it yeah that's what I was just thinking that it's like it's all, all, all the action is going on below the surface and there's just this totally calm person just sitting there making it look really easy <laughs> so it sounds like that's the natural end of our 
episode? Normally as a host, we hand over to other people because, you know, that's host etiquette. You don't do your thing first. So I'm going to break all the rules because as you were talking, even though I'm prepared some websites where I went, oh, that's a good website I can say about on the podcast. As you were talking, I was thinking about this book that I've been listening to, which I'm halfway through, and it kind of resonated with me that some listeners might want to go and have a read of it or a listen to it to just get a bit of an idea about like slightly different perspectives on health or, you know, the way that society is set up. So it's called Utopia for Realists. And it's really interesting because it, it's, it looks historically over hundreds of years about social interventions or policy interventions that uh, changed um, different circumstances that impact on health and well-being of nations and how that's impact and how that looks like in our current culture and how we could potentially change things to have more of a utopian society. And I have to admit that I haven't fully reference checked everything that he's spoken about, but it has been a really useful food for thought listening to the kinds of things that um, he talks about in the social literature and how that impacts on health and well-being um, from a non-clinical perspective. It's been really interesting to have to, that to listen to and I'm halfway through. And so uh, I can't comment on how the rest of the book is going to go, but it is something that's worth a bit of a listen to or a read if you want to get a slightly different perspective. So you're recommending the first half anyway? The first three and a half hours I've listened to so far, yeah. <laughs> and so, Charlotte, what's your...? Yeah, well, well, I'll move. I'll, I'll just continue with my, you know, highlight of the week, which is Park Run. So I would actually recommend that everybody needs to actually do a little bit of a tag to the Park Run website because if there is a patient who you think it's really a worthwhile thing in terms of a way that maybe will help them with socialising, um, getting out, because actually, you know, people really, it's very helpful just to say, look, you don't need to go and walk, you don't need to run, just go and be there and be a volunteer. Um, and the number of people who then end up either walking it or running it is huge. And all they need to do is register um, on the website and create a barcode that they then use when they turn up each week. And you can actually do it for them and that's sort of one way of actually getting, maybe helping them to go is do the couple of minutes that it takes to register, print off a barcode and then that might just be that little that little bit of a kick in the bottom to change a, a totally sedentary lifestyle to a little bit of movement and certainly a little bit more socialisation. And for people in regional or rural areas, is there kind of that where they don't have parkrun, is there some sort of way that they can start parkrun happening in their areas? Absolutely. And it's going to be something that hopefully the RSCGP is going to be looking at in terms of championing. Um, and so we're going to be putting together a kit of information about how you can help partner to set up one in your local area. So if anybody is interested, just watch this space. It's going to be be sort of emerging and it's very very exciting they've been doing a project like this over in the UK and they've already now got 1,700 practices linked in wow. with um with their local park runs cool and Beck, I'm going to stick on the patient um pearl of the week and one of my favorite websites both for patients and for um medical pediatric stuff is called don't forget the bubbles 
um.com so it is a uk website but their patient handouts are amazing um they're all nicely colored and they've got really pretty flows that you can go through the one that i've been using recently so i work in a particularly cold part of the world and it was freezing cold over the last week so lots of people with log hot log fires and um air conditioning is the eczema management <laughs> so i've been advising lots of people how to manage their terribly controlled eczema in the highlands and they've got a really awesome handout on eczema management both for doctors and for patients that's awesome i only really knew it as a podcast or um a conference i didn't realize that they did clinical resources yeah, the podcast and the conference are both also meant to be amazing. Good reviews about both of those two. And Beth? I also want to plug Parkrun because I'm go- I've got another thing, but I just want to say with Parkrun, I, I am a Parkrunner um, and I've actually volunteered more times than I've run and that's for a variety of reasons and injuries that I've had. Um, and I think I actually enjoy volunteering more because you get to like stand on the side of the run and like shout at people and, and hold a sign and stuff. And I think I enjoy it more than the actual running. So I am totally excited that RACGP are doing parkrun. That's I think that's so super, super cool. I mean, you guys asked me to come on here because of my writing. So I'm going to talk about a book that I read this year about creativity and um, pursuing your, I guess, creative uh, purpose. Um, it's called The War of Art and it's by Stephen Pressfield. It's a little bit self-helpy or it looks a little bit self-helpy when you look at the cover um, and it's plugged self-helpy, but I found it to be a really transformative um Really enjoyable, really funny book uh, written by a guy who was a very unsuccessful screenwriter for until he was about forty, and then wrote a very successful film and um, and went on to write a, a number of um, excellent screenplays. But he uh, talks about procrastination and about self doubt and the battles that you face when you're trying to pursue your creative projects. And I found it really validating, really practical, um, funny. Um, and I still use a lot of the a lot of the little sayings that he um, that he talks about. He he really turns procrastination into an actual foe. He talks about it as a force that actually comes up against you actively when you're trying to do these creative things that you that you feel you need to do that you feel is your um, purpose and your thing that you have to offer the world. So for anyone out there who's struggling with self-belief in terms of their creative projects i'd really recommend it. it's really enjoyable it's short it's funny it's great the war of art by stephen pressfield thank you beth we've really enjoyed having you on today and i feel like we really nailed some of the key issues in our profession and medical sphere at the moment as well as social and and health related problems in australia so i'm a little bit excited to edit this episode and get it out there Thanks for having me. It was super fun.